politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is Daniel Horowitz back in the house. And yes, you guys are indeed citizens, not subjects here. And that is why you need Blaze Media, your one independent conservative source here. Um, and, and yes, a lot of you have been asking me about my article as a conservative review. There was a revamp. Obviously, we had a merger a long time ago. It's completed. So my articles are going to be at, at theblaze.com. You could just Google Daniel Horowitz, The Blaze. You'll see all of the uh, articles in chronological order. Um, conservative review will be the Liberty score. I know it's been down, but it should be up any any day really today. Uh, so you could check out your congressman's voting record. That is primarily what that website will be. Um, one of the original purposes of it. Um, with that said, there is so much going on today. And I'm just going to be jumping back and forth. Good news, bad news, uh, arson, murder, Corona fascism, back and forth, all the chaos, because we don't have enough people doing what's proper. I could I could do this for two, three hours a day, but I need to do the research, so I don't have the time. But anyway, you know, it's funny. I, I just see as I'm recording here, Sweden is reporting the fewest cases since the beginning of the epidemic in March. What, what's amazing about Sweden is not just the fact that they have like zero to one deaths per day now. And it's been that way for months. The fact that they have very few even reported cases. It's that they truly have the flattest of flat curves, right? Most other countries had some sort of a peak initially in late March, early April, sometimes late April. And then it went down. And then at some point, to some degree, it went up again. And those that never went up, eventually are going up, like Israel, and now even Denmark and Norway, to at least a certain extent, their signs is going up. Sweden never, ever went back up. It's a straight line. It had its thing, done, went down. So this entire thing started under the premise that we are going to do what is unparalleled in human history, lock down the healthy with the sick, Think that you could hide from a virus under the guise of flattening the spread when in fact what you are doing is the exact opposite. You're ensuring that it kind of goes up and down, up and down, up and down and drags out the pain longer. The pain of the virus, the pain of the lockdown, the panic, the mental uh, health problems. And the longer you keep it around, the more likely it will get vulnerable people. Sweden got it over with. So it's like you look at a simple chart. I mean, you just Google it. Sweden, COVID, whether it's you know Google or WHO, um, they're all the same data. The, no one disagrees about the data. It truly is a flat curve. And uh, so here, we actually didn't achieve a flat curve. The only thing we did was flatten our country. So that's with that. So we have a lot more out today. I have an entire article framing Sweden's success, what they've done. Truly, truly remarkable. Uh, you know, based on any any standard. I might get back to that a little bit later. 
with Sweden. But I first want to just tackle a couple of other things here. I know I'm a sack full of bad news sometimes, and I do want to highlight exceptions to the rule when sometimes there is a change. And we talked about yesterday how we're having the insurrection and the violence of BLM even in red areas now. But I do want to say it has become clear that the Lancaster police did take care of it very well. And I think that's at least good news that at least there's somewhere in the country where they're not going to take this. Where they're not going to take a justified shooting and say just because the guy who got shot happened to have been a career criminal wife beater and druggy, and the color of his skin happened to be black, therefore we're not allowed to shoot him, and therefore we have to kind of like give our sacrificial um, offering to BLM and allow them to burn down our police station, allow them to harm others. They put it down swiftly. They arrested people. They're holding them um, on high bail. So that is a job well done by the Lancaster PD, and that needs to be modeled and replicated elsewhere. Another piece of good news doesn't negate the main point I'm making about the courts, but we finally, finally had a federal judge, was a Trump appointee, who spoke the truth about this entire notion that a governor, a county official, could indefinitely say, oh, public health concern, your business is shut down, you're essential, you can't gather in these numbers under any circumstances until I say you can, this is the new normal, shut up, I don't have to produce evidence. Now, it didn't cover masks, that wasn't part of it, but it was stay-at-home orders, it was businesses, it was churches, gatherings, things like that. Um, This was Judge William Stickman, appointed by Trump, Western District of Pennsylvania. Um, This guy hails from Armstrong County, which is conservative. So we finally drew a good judge, and he categorically said that all of this is unconstitutional. All of this garbage is unconstitutional. And he made a lot of the points that we have made. Now, again, it doesn't negate the fact that still the majority of judges... uh, basically are recognizing BS rights and refusing to enforce uh, real rights. But, you know, hopefully this will be good news. Now, I just want to let you know, we we tend to have to win all the time, every time. The left only has to win one time. So what's going to happen is, Whenever we get a bad opinion, we try to appeal it, it never works out. Whenever we get a good opinion and they appeal it, it works out for them. So the Third Circuit is still horrendous. So they're going to appeal it to the Third Circuit, which oversees Pennsylvania. Um, and I, I would imagine they'll reverse this. So what that will mean is then it goes to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme, what's the status quo at that point that the, the left-wing governor wins? John Roberts will like to keep it at the status quo. So I wouldn't surprise me if the Supreme Court would then just kind of pocket shadow shadow um, ban this judge's ruling by allowing the appellate court decision to, to be upheld. Who knows? But again, at least we have something here. And I just want to set the table by saying that my view on the role of the judiciary hasn't changed. I've said all along, 
if you have individual plaintiffs with real valid standing that their lives are being directly affected, real rights, life, liberty, and property are being imminently affected, you have the right to go to a court and ask for relief on an individual level. And that's what was done here. Right? It doesn't make it that the law is struck down or the edict is struck down. It just makes it that, look, I could go to court and say, look, I, I, I'm going to do what I want. I mean, you can't enforce this on me. Now, it doesn't change the fact that the other branches could push back. I mean, in this case, they'd be wrong. But the point is that the courts are one avenue, not the sole avenue, not the final arbiter, but it is one avenue. But moreover, it's the fact that we all as a society, judiciary, executive, legislative branch, county, state, federal, writers, reporters, society, we all as a whole need to throw a red flag and say this is wrong if we believe a legitimate constitutional right was violated. And if there's not a legitimate right and courts are inventing it, we need to call that out as well. And you debate it. You write in a judge could write an opinion. Depending on how good and persuasive that opinion is, that's how much it'll be accepted. And this was very persuasive. Because he goes through it all. And he starts off with the level of, of um, scrutiny that you apply. Over the last century, I'm just reading from page 11 here, federal courts have developed a regimen of tiered scrutiny for examining most constitutional issues, rational basis, intermediate scrutiny, and strict scrutiny. The appropriate standard depends on the nature of the claim and specifically the nature of the right allegedly infringed. In this case, defendants point to the emergency nature of the challenge measures and correctly argue that they have broad authority under state police powers in reacting to emergency situations relating to public health and safety. They contend that the traditional standards of constitutional scrutiny should not apply, but rather that a more deferential standard as articulated in Jacobson v. Massachusetts. Now, what I love is how he goes through Jacobson like we did. So again, just to review, this was a 1904-1905 decision where the court, the Supreme Court basically said that Massachusetts could force you to get the smallpox vaccine. And... I have made two points. So, that, so that's that's the thing that they're running with at the expense of every other court decision that says the opposite. But even with Jacobson, the point I've made is, is twofold, and he really articulates especially one of them. One is, even that, as, as invasive as it is, it was a one-stop shop. It doesn't per- affect your life in perpetuity. You're shut down in perpetuity. You have to wear a mask in perpetuity. It's a one-time thing. Number two, the, the level of evidence of the effectual nature, of, uh, effectiveness of the smallpox vaccine was much more just per, persuasive and, and clear than this voodoo crap, which is not only uh, effective as we've seen from Sweden, it's ineffective. And, you know, so so it's this indefinite, open-natured thing that that I could do anything indefinitely without showing my work whereas this was a one-time thing um very defined with evidence now i'm not saying i liked that precedent that we set that slippery slope because again the the key thing to understand with governmental actions is this is government putting a positive on your negative or a negative on your positive 
Put another way, is government forcing you to engage in an activity, criminalizing your existence without you taking an action or without us taking an action against you? Or are they just saying, we are going to curtail something that you are doing? So as I've said before, and and again, the masks are not subject to this, but masking is you are forcing someone, you are saying their existence is a threat in perpetuity without them taking an action. They are not allowed to breathe free air. Stay-at-home orders. You're not allowed to walk out. You're not allowed allowed to go anywhere unless we say it's approved. And then finally, Jacobson was before the courts created all this substantive due process. Now, I'm not saying I agree with it, but what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If you're going to say there is a right to privacy to murder your baby, so again, you are taking a positive action and government is trying to block you from taking a positive action. Here we're saying government could take action against you. You're negative and force you to engage in a certain activity. So clearly Jacobson is countermanded under 100 years of jurisprudence since then. And he notes that very well. So I think he really, really effectively went into that and he really played up the point that this is an ongoing indefinite thing. The extraordinary emergency measures taken by defendants in this case were promulgated beginning in March six months ago. What were initially billed as temporary measures necessary to flatten the curve and protect hospital capacity have become open-ended and ongoing restrictions aimed at a very different end, stopping the spread of an infectious disease and preventing new cases from arising, which requires ongoing and open-ended efforts. Now, he doesn't say, of course, they don't work. Further, while the harshest measures have been suspended, defendants admit that they remain in place and can be reinstated um, when defendants see fit. So that's the key point that I kept making. There is no way under any provision, mind you, the Constitution has no exception to fundamental rights for emergencies other than habeas corpus during a time of a rebellion. But even if you conjure up some, you know, some fallacious argument of emergency powers against fundamental rights, you, you can't do that forever and and as he notes i'm really glad the judge did this he's he talked about the use of the words new normal in other words you can't argue on the one hand daniel this is extraordinary this emergency one-time thing we got to do it oh this is the new normal well that works against your legal claim then i mean these are simple legal arguments the fact that it took six months to finally get a federal judge i mean we had state judges in in wisconsin but really nowhere else uh, it's truly unbelievable. And that's the thing here. So this is a solid ruling. He notes that the limit on gathering violates First Amendment. To just say, you can't gather. I mean, that's the First Amendment. So you need to really demonstrate the efficacy of what you're doing. And he applied intermediate scrutiny, not strict scrutiny to that. He applied strict scrutiny to the stay-at-home orders because those are really severe. So that's the story with that. Now, obviously, he uses substantive due process and equal protection. My view is it's covered by the privileges and immunities clause 
of the 14th Amendment per Clarence Thomas, uh, you know, his his view on that. But again, I mean, he's following what the Supreme Court has laid out for 100 years. If we're going to use it for BS rights, we sure as heck better use it for real rights. So, I mean, at, at least we are... The point is not, oh, a judge struck it down. It's not, again, judges don't strike things down. That's not the point. The point is that we need someone, and that means executive officials, legislative officials, judicial officials, members of the media, members of a society, thought leaders, cultural leaders, to start questioning, wait a minute, is there no limit to what you can do to us as a human being? Is this North Korea? What happened to the Constitution? You know what I mean? Before we get into the debate of the, the science and the math and the, you know, the virus itself, like the Constitution does exist. You can't just do anything you want to a citizen to their life and property and, and, and you know, right to earn a living. And, and that's another thing he noted here. Um, first of all, by the way, he takes apart, like they talk about the Spanish flu. They always say, well, Daniel, you know, because we say like we never did this before. So they, they go all the way back to the Spanish flu, but they always exaggerate what we did. They exaggerate it. And he, he really noted that. Um, so basically what he notes is that the restrictions weren't nearly as sweeping they only lasted for about a month, at least in Pennsylvania, because that's where he is. Um, they, they tended to be very short. And it was mainly aimed at just large, large events. You know, because you had that whole Liberty Bonds parade in Philadelphia that they felt spread it. I mean, really big events. But this real invasiveness into your life and your small business and your churches, I mean, that really did not happen in any large scale. And then he just notes in general how this this has just never been done in human history. So the notion that you could treat this as the new normal indefinitely for the rest of our lives and then look at anyone who opposes it as if they're the crazy one and they're the ones who have to prove you know, the veracity of their views. I mean, it, it, it has constitutional rights and and um, scrutiny of, of uh, government policies flipped on its head. So, you know, he is very clear, violates the 14th Amendment. Um, and then he talks about the right to earn a living. Basically... That every person has a right to pursue happiness, okay? I can't say your business is shut. Like, you're not essential. I mean, the notion that we allowed that to get off the ground is insane. It's become normal. We Like, we think it's normal. Hey, like, what's essential again? Is it this? Is it that? You can't do that. He quotes uh, Justice William Douglas. The right to work, I assumed, was the most precious liberty that man possesses. Man has indeed as much right to work as he has to live, to be free to own property. The American ideal was stated by Emerson in his essay on politics. A man has a right to be employed, to be trusted, to be loved, to be revered. It does many men 
little good to stay alive and free and, and propertied if they cannot work. To work means to eat. It also means to live. For many, it would be better to work in jail than to sit idle on the curb. The great values of freedom are the opportunities afforded to man to press to new horizons, to pit his strength against the forces of nature, to match, to match uh, skills with his fellow man. And um, this uh, Judge Stickman notes, in a free state, the ability to earn a living by pursuing one's calling and to support oneself and one's family is not an economic good. It's a human good. It's like we're shutting down the economy. No, you're shutting down human rights. And, and that's the story. And then, of course, he ended off. The court closes this opinion as it began by recognizing the defendant's actions at issue. Here were undertaken with good intentions. Of course, he throws it out of addressing a public health emergency. But even in an emergency, the authority of government is not unfettered. The liberties protected by the Constitution are not fair weather freedoms in place when times are good, but able to be cast aside in times of trouble. There is no question that this country has faced and will face emergencies of every sort. But the solution to a national crisis can never be permitted to supersede the commitment to individual liberty that stands as the foundation of the American experiment. Constitution cannot accept the concept of a new normal where basic liberties of the people can be subordinate to open-ended emergency mitigation measures. Rather, the Constitution sets certain lines that may not be crossed, even in an emergency. Actions taken by defendants cross those lines. It is the duty of the court to declare those actions unconstitutional. Now, he's right. It's the duty of all of us to declare them unconstitutional. It's the duty of all branches. And, and, and again, likewise, if... If a court mandates something unconstitutional, it's the duty of other branches to say that. I'm very consistent in my view that it's it's three co-equal branches. But, I mean, this was much needed. So at least finally, finally, we got a ruling that speaks to common sense. And that's the thing. At some point, there are human rights at, at stake. I mean, I mean, we are told, like, let me just say this, there, and I'm forgetting the court case, but it was within the last year or two, probably last year, where they barred like schools from certain dress codes or something. They said it was unconstitutional. I mean, certain things like that were just like common sense and they weren't invasive because you were just limiting. You can't wear this, not that you must wear this. And here I could just say I'm shoving a mask on you for six, seven hours or whatever. Every day. Some places are doing it even in gym. The Brussels Times from Belgium. The face mask requirement at school is bad for children's general well-being and should be abolished. 70 doctors wrote in an open letter to Flemish Education Minister Ben Waits. The doctors want Waits to immediately reverse his approach. No face mask requirement at schools. Only protect the at-risk group and only advise people with a possible risk profile to consult their doctor. Quote, in recent months... The general well-being of children and young people has come under severe pressure. The letter's author said, We see in our practices an increasing number of children and young people with complaints due to the rules of conduct that have been imposed upon them. They talked about anxiety, sleep problems, behavioral disorders, germophobia, increase in domestic violence, isolation, deprivation, mandatory face masks, and schools are a major threat to their development. It ignores the essential needs of the growing child. The well-being of children and young people is highly dependent on emotional attachment to others. I mean, whatever happened to all these touchy-feely people? It's funny, like, like you, you're not allowed to give grades anymore. You're not allowed to do this. You can't have tests. You can't have this. You can't have punishment. 
I mean, everything is going to, you know, harm our fragile children. Everything's for the children. And now it's like, shut up, let's rape our children for something that really is not only less than the flu, but to most of them, it's less than, than a, you know, a cold, which, you know, I stepped out of my house today. It was freezing. I was like, whoa, where did that come from? It was like boiling hot last week. Now it's freezing. But then during the day, it gets warm again. I always get a cold when the weather does that. Where, who do I get it from? I don't know. It's almost like the weather itself does it to you. But that's what it is. When the weather changes, you get this stuff. So now that's going to be a pretext to test everyone. Now the cold is the new normal. A cold is the new emergency. And again, like folks, I, I want to reiterate this is the utter sickness that is taking place here with the original thing being to flatten the curve with hospitalizations. We have 1.8% of emergency department visits are with COVID-like symptoms. Okay, CLI. That's what the CDC surveils in their data. 1.8% of all ED visits are for that. And mind you, as we noted yesterday, a good percentage of them, if not the overwhelming majority, are really subclinical. It's a matter of self-fulfilling because of the panic. Someone who gets, you know, it's not that they're having trouble breathing, something that you really do need to go to the hospital for, but, you know, they have a cough and fever and they're they're scared, so, so they go. Um, but that is, you know, two COVID-like symptoms, I think, will get you a CLI data point there, and that will be registered. Even at the peak, it was 6.8% at the highest level in April. Now, there were certain areas where it was a lot more. There were hot spots, but across the nation, the average was 6.8 at the highest time. There were areas like Houston during the 2018 uh, flu pandemic that nobody found out about that hit 13%. 13% of all ED visits were for influenza-like illness. And because there was no panic behind that, it was more organically driven. So pound per pound, they are going to be more serious. Now, yeah, there are some people that do always use ERs as kind of primary care. So you have that baked in. But what I'm just saying is now there's a lot more panic that's going to drive a much lower threshold of fear that I need to go to the hospital. Now, again, to be fair, that 13% number was probably a hot spot. And the 68 at the at the peak and 1.8 now is the national average. But still, you get the point. If for something like that, we did nothing, how do we get to a point of a thousand times more restrictions and disruptions of life for something like this right now it is not even a level of a flu it's a level of the cold right if you look at the ili surveillance data cdc has this in their last weekly update it is no higher than it typically is meaning it's not just like oh well daniel of course you know for august september it's not as high as a flu season in january no no, it's not as high as what they typically see even on a typical September, right? It's tracking. I mean, there's nothing out of the ordinary being seen in ERs across the nation. There's almost not a single place where there's in America today where there's even a slight kind of like stress. Not overrun, but but even like, oh, you know, we got a lot of people coming in. 
Very, very little. That is the new threshold for panic. It, it, it is truly, truly unbelievable. By the way, another amazing story. CDC government is putting this out. Remember how we talked about wildfires. Isn't it funny how we're always ahead of the curve. You hear things here first and then it happens. We talked about the fact that for years, the EPA, CDC, um, state departments of health said that do not use masks as a false sense of security to protect you from smoke inhalation in areas hit by wildfires. The particles will get in anyway. It's just going to be counterproductive. Don't put them on kids. It's dangerous for them. Again, you go to any Western state's Department of Health, they have that to this day. I noted at the time that the particles are about... Um, smoke particles are about 1,000 nanometers. Well, COVID is about 100. This is about one-tenth. So you're telling me it doesn't work for that. So it's not going to work for this. Well, guess what? You would think they would kind of like crawl under a rock and just ignore it. They directly, directly addressed it head on. They said, yeah, even though it doesn't work for this, make sure you wear it for COVID. I couldn't believe they put it out. COVID is 10 times smaller. This is truly an illness. The, the level of corruption at a governmental level, at a public health, medical profession level, is truly criminal. And it's transparently false at this point. Everything they say. Everything they say. Truly, truly unbelievable. Now, before I go on, I just want to read to you an astounding thing from the granddaddy of Sweden's strategy. Um, he is not the current epidemiologist, but he's the mentor to the current one. He, he was epidemiologist in Sweden for 20 years. And, um, you know, his name is Johan Giasecki. I'm sure you've heard the name over the last number of, of months. And it's amazing how prophetic he was in May 5th. May 5th, early on. And he probably, it looks like he wrote it in April, but it was published in the Lancet um, on May 5th. And he wrote, Many countries have marveled at Sweden's relaxed strategy in the face of coronavirus disease uh, pandemic. Schools and most workplaces have remained open, and police officers were not checking one's errands in the streets. Severe critics have described it as Sweden sacrificing its elderly citizens to quickly reach herd immunity. And he noted very clearly, he said, it has become clear that a hard lockdown does not protect old and frail people living in care homes, a population the lockdown was designed to protect. Neither does it decrease mortality from COVID-19, which is evident from comparing UK's experience with that of other European countries. PCR testing and some straightforward assumptions indicate that as of April 29th, more than half a million people in, in Stockholm County, Sweden, which is about 20 to 25% of the population, have been affected or infected. And he notes that 98 to 99% of those people were either unaware they had symptoms, um, you know, 
and the few that had severe symptoms weren't severe enough for them to go to the hospital and get tested. These facts have led me to the following conclusions. Remember, he wrote this at the end of April. Everyone will be exposed to severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus too, and most people will become infected. Okay, so everyone's going to be exposed to it. Most people are going to be infected in some level. COVID is spreading like wildfire in all countries, but we do not see it. Remember, this is him speaking then. Now we see it. It almost always spreads from younger people with no or weak symptoms to other people who will also have mild symptoms. Okay, so this notion that you could have someone with you know barely anything that's going to give a deadly dosage to someone else is really going to be very rare that you find that. This is a real pandemic, but it goes beneath the surface and it probably is at its peak now in many European countries. There's very little we can do to prevent this spread. A lockdown might delay uh, severe cases for a while, but once restrictions are eased, cases will reappear. I expect that when we count the number of deaths from COVID-19 in each country in one year from now, the figures will be similar regardless of measures taken. Measures to flatten the curve might have an effect, but a lockdown only pushes the severe cases into the future. It will not prevent them. And um, and that's the story. Much hope is put in vaccines, but they will take time. It's unclear, you know, how, how well it will be. And he just ends off very simply. In summary, COVID-19 is a disease that is highly infectious and spreads rapidly through society. Notice he just says highly infectious, spreads rapidly. We don't know how exactly it does it. It just does. It is often quite symptomless and might pass unnoticed, but it also causes severe disease and even death in a proportion of the population. And our most important task is to not stop the spread, which is all but futile, but to concentrate on giving the unfortunate victims optimal care. And that's all you can do. Boy, oh boy, was he prophetic in that Sweden beat out all the real bad countries despite having nothing and despite none of the collateral damage. Never had their hospitals overrun. And now as time goes on, they're surpassing and surpassing more and more countries. They've obviously surpassed America. And that will only go in one direction. And look, wait till the other smaller countries like Israel get their due and come back in a year. Wow. It's truly powerful. I remember it at the time when he wrote it, but just wanted to share that with you again today. Who would have ever thought we'd be praising the Swedes for prudent leadership? But um, there you have it. We cannot begin to imagine the effects on a society when you myopically focus on a cold that that is increasingly rarely deadly Um for even even sick people, but can be deadly for sick people. Let me just give you one example of this myopic approach. It's not just in politicians. You might think, okay, doctors are super technical and they're they're gonna you know be good. No, I'm hearing horror stories of stupid doctors, stupid medical professionals, like someone comes in with Lyme disease and they think it's COVID and they waste valuable time, valuable treatment. Um, chasing the wrong thing. And mind you, because this is very pervasive, but very mild, asymptomatic in many, 
and the testing is so sensitive, a lot of people could technically have part of the pathogen. It spreads throughout society, so to some degree, everyone's going to be exposed. So it's like if you test a trace in people, almost everyone's going to have some sort of a trace at some point. But is that really what's causing what they have? So we have a lot of that. But again, I'm hearing this third hand, and let me know if you've heard similar stories, but it doesn't surprise me. Friend told me he has a friend who uh, had a pregnant daughter, gave birth in a Michigan hospital. She had complications, was losing tons of blood. You know, it's rarer these days than it used to be, but it does happen. Um, We take childbirth for granted. They did not give her a blood transfusion because they wanted to save it for COVID. They wanted to save it for COVID. When we are at levels that are less than the flu right now, it's cold levels. This, this is what we're doing to ourselves. I, I want to be extra cautious. It's like saying, I want to be cautious about not hitting the left guardrail on the highway, so I'll hit the right guardrail. You don't have the luxury of doing that. I feel like drawing up a political cartoon of a guy going to the doctor and saying, hey, so what is it, doc? What's the prognosis? What's the diagnosis? Doctor says, you got stage four pancreatic cancer. And the person says, whew, wow. Sure glad it wasn't COVID. I mean, I mean, this, this is this is what we're we're at now. It's like, you know, in the schools now, they're all like, okay, well, let's make sure it's not COVID. And like, Meanwhile, it's the flu, it's a cold, it's strep throat. Like most of that stuff, kids have a harder time from it than, than COVID. I mean, my, my daughter, I told you, like the cold got worse last night. I felt really bad for her, the baby. She had um, she had a rough night. It was sneezing and coughing and very congested. You know, I really felt bad for her. That's worse than anything she would get from COVID. And yet we live with it. Even more, moreover, We now know that those very things that young kids and babies often get, they're they're, they're often congested. It's God giving them a vaccine. It would be the equivalent of them getting a COVID vaccine and then testing everyone with a PCR test that could pick up the trace of the virus that's embedded in the vaccine. That's essentially what they're doing in most cases now. I'm not saying there's not anyone who gets very sick from it, but it's a very, very tiny percentage. And remember, the original fear was a 3.4% death rate, and God knows what sort of a clinical illness rate, 10, 15%. And now we're at, who knows? I mean, we talk about 0.2.3, and that's mainly directed towards a very confined population. Most other people were decimal point over. Children are several decimal points over. But that's if you factor in the, you know, the, the beginning. If you look at where we are right now and have been for the last several months, that IFR is below the flu. Certainly the treatments have gotten better and, and that's all you can do. At some point we need to grab the bull by the horns and speak directly to the morality of this. Not like, oh, can we like like let's let, let's have kids schools open? Don't close the schools. Okay, well, let's wear the mask. But you no, know, the mask is perpetuating that level of fear. You can't have it both ways. You can't be like, yeah, Daniel, you're right. We need to keep open. This really isn't so bad. But yeah, I'll still wear a mask. 
that's not normal. That is a degree of inordinate fear that reflects something, even if it would work, which it doesn't, of like a 3.4% kill rate. So you can't have it both ways. Well, you're right, it's kind of like a flu, but we still need to do this. No, we don't. No, we don't. There's a lot more news on this. I just wanted to get to some of the um, crime news. We talked about wildfires. Look how things come full circle. Look how things come full circle. So it turns out now that they they blame the wildfires on, on global warming. It turns out there are repeat violent offenders and arsonists that were released and never jailed that set the fire and caused all that devastation. You see the pictures, it kind of looks like Kenosha. It's devastating. The sad thing is both of them were now caused by repeat violent offenders who aren't locked up. A North Carolina cop was killed by a repeat violent offender. Um, This happened Saturday, Henderson County, very quiet county. This was a fugitive from Virginia. Um, A man that had a history yay long And two points I wanted to make on this case in North Carolina was Officer Hendricks. Ryan Hendricks, he was a Marine veteran, father of two. So he gets called down because, not because they want to beat up black people and patrol them. As always, it's a victim that calls, that calls 911. There was a break-in. They come, they find the guy in his car at the scene. They say, put your hands up. He appears to comply initially, but according to the sheriff, in one rapid movement, he retrieved the gun, firing one round, striking Hendricks in the face and critically wounding him, and eventually he died. The deputies returned fire, and and the suspect, Robert Ray Doss Jr., was killed. I want you to understand, and I've been saying this all along, you can never have a balanced discussion when you have hundreds of millions of police interactions with citizens, and you focus on the few that go wrong, and even those, most of them are justifiable, and like, oh, why did he have to shoot? And I always noted, for every one case you could find where you feel that the guy maybe shot too early, what's never reported is the body count of cops every single day in this country. Probably never a day goes by when this doesn't happen. Where a cop died because he, he gave that extra time. He was hesitated. See, people look upon drugs, burglaries. Oh, yeah, the guy's kind of messed up, kind of bad, but he's not gonna, he's not violent. No, those are precisely the people doing them. When police get a call from a victim that there's a crime being committed, it's almost certain it is a repeat violent offender doing it, however violent that particular crime is or isn't. So you're right, it shouldn't have to escalate into violence. Oh, it's a shame a burglary had to turn into a death. But the criminal gets a vote in the matter, and they respond in a way. So it's very tough because you don't want to go to every burglary with your gun automatically drawn, finger on the trigger. But technically, to stay alive, they really need to do that. And in this case, the fact that the guy, I mean, see, typically, these punks are not that good. They're like the gangster style. They shoot you point blank. They're not very good at draw shooting, that they could draw and accurately shoot that quickly, like a professional draw shooter. 
the fact that he was able to get that tells me that the the cop was not at the ready. He trusted him too much. That he didn't have the gun drawn and the finger ready. Police reform. What about those reforms? For every one where you think he used force too quickly, there's a thousand others where it's too tardy and they give their life for it. And yes, he was a career criminal. He had arrests in Georgia, South Carolina, Maryland, and Virginia. Drugs, multiple arson, felony theft. He was out just last year on a gun crime. Never served any time. Never served any time. By the way, arson is is a really big problem. I've noticed that. And they rarely get time. That's treated as a low-level offense. It's another one of those offenses that it's very hard to get someone on first degree. Like, often, you'll see third-degree arson, fourth-degree arson. You think, like, what does that mean? Like, you know, you, you forgot to guard your grill and it spread or something? No, I mean, it's straight up a maniac that lights a fire. But just, it's just hard to get him on first degree. So they, they don't get jail time. And it's on and on and on. Every single one. Every single one. One percent of the population accounts for 63% of violent crimes. If all violent uh, criminals came to a stop after the third conviction, more than 50% of all convictions for violent crime would be prevented. Every single one of these is a repeat offender whether it's a BLM dude, whether it's one of these police shootings that they yelp about, whether it's an arson suspect, whether it's one of these crazy videos you see from New York City with someone beating, robbing, raping, you know, committing a heinous, brazen crime, broad daylight. Every single time. Yet the only crime we have nowadays is COVID. We're treated like criminals. So anyway, folks, there's tons more information I have. Lots of articles I have up at my byline on on theblaze.com. Just Google Daniel Daniel Horowitz, The Blaze. You'll you'll find it. Um, There's news on the border, too. You know, I forgot to mention, for August, the border apprehensions were almost back at 50,000. At an annualized level, that's up to like 600,000. And everything I'm hearing September, which we're halfway through, is going to be even worse. So that's already at the foot of the mountain of the crisis levels. That's already at the lower end of the crisis levels for last year. We were down to like 15,000. Where is this headed? I'll tell you why. Because we don't enforce interior enforcement, so they don't fear. Forget about the border. They know they could come here. They could get standing in court. They could not only get rights, but sue for rights and criminalize enforcement, sue others, beat up others if they enforce it get freebies, get a job, they're going to keep coming. These are mainly single adults, although recently I have heard family units are starting again. So that's another thing we're going to cover. Again, folks, we are not winning this. We are not winning this. But hopefully that glimmer of good news, Lancaster PD, finally putting down BLM, giving them their just dessert. Also in Pennsylvania, funny, everything's going on there. Western Pennsylvania federal judge 
finally recognized in Constitution. Let's take this glimmer of hope. Let's set a fire, a brush fire of liberty to put out the fire of crime and tyranny. Till tomorrow, thank you all for listening, and God bless.